All right. Hey, let's pray this morning and we're going to get started. Father, thanks for the morning. Thank you that we can come as your redeemed people, um, as people who have been uh, brought out of slavery, as people who have been brought out of bondage, as people who have been set free, delivered uh, by your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for that delivery. Thank you that we are no longer slaves to sin. Thank you that we are no longer slaves to Satan. Thank you that we are no longer slaves to death itself, but through the cross of Christ and through the resurrection of our Lord, um, death and sin and Satan himself have been defeated and rendered without power in our lives. And we're so grateful for that. Father, we ask that you would be among us now as we look into your word, uh, that you would illuminate our hearts, illuminate our minds, help us, God, make our hearts soft um, towards you and towards your word and towards the things that you want to do in our life. Spirit, would you come and teach us? Would you come be our teacher? Would you be our helper? Would you be our guide? And the Spirit, would you speak through me uh, so that the words that I say would not just be um, in word only, but would be with power and and great conviction so that you would um, make these things true in our life as we go forth this afternoon and the rest of the week, that we would be transformed and changed by your word. Uh, You are a great God. You're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our submission. You're worthy of being bowed down to. You're worthy of being sacrificed for. And you're worthy of being served with our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, with all that we are. You're worthy of that. And so I pray today that our songs and that our giving and that our conversations, that our listening and that our hugs, uh, everything that we have done today, I pray that it would have been a sweet-smelling aroma, an act of worship to you. And so be among us now. We ask for your grace. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're starting a new series that we will do uh, for a good portion, if not all, of the summer months. And I've entitled this sermon series, The Idol Factory. I don't know if you've noticed that there's something different about our stage this morning. Just an additional piece of something that's here. Thank you, Pam Dodd, even though she's not here, for making our idol factory. Uh, Here in the upcoming weeks, we are going to see that the idol factory, which is our heart, um, will be producing some things. And so in the weeks uh, to come, we will have some production happening here. And so we've got our factory this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to the book of Exodus, is where we're going to be this morning. The book of Exodus, chapter 20, uh, may be familiar to some of you. Uh, that is where the Ten Commandments are found. And so uh, Exodus, chapter 20, is where we're going to be. If you want to use one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 60 in your NIV Pew Bible. And so uh, Exodus, chapter 20, the first six verses is where, uh, where we're going to hang out this morning. Um, so I'm going to let you get there, Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have your text, uh, the text should be on the screen. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And we'll get started with part one of the idol factory, worship gone wrong. Worship gone wrong. Uh, now many of us, I think, hopefully found that clip at least somewhat mildly amusing, interesting, funny. Um, if you're familiar with uh, the Star Wars trilogy and all of that, uh, you know that the next scene, uh, they basically take C-3PO and they kind of an, uh, uh, give him a throne, if you will, and they set him on this throne and he is their god, their deity. Um, and he saves his friends from being sacrificed uh, uh, and, and burned uh, in honor to him. Uh, that's where that scene is going, if you didn't know. Uh, but I think most of us, when we see uh, a scene like that, when we see these little furry bear kind of creatures, which are so cute, uh, in spite of the 
aggressiveness that we saw in, in that film. Uh, we see them doing uh, acts of worship, uh, bowing down, doing their kind of, oh, um, kind of a chant that they were doing. You know, we kind, of, we kind of look at that and we say, yeah, that happens in the movies. That happens in prim- primitive places in the world where although there aren't furry Ewoks in other countries, at least I don't think that that's a real animal. It'd be cool if it was, right? Um, uh, but, but there are people in this world that, you know, third world countries, they do this kind of thing, right? They see an, a golden image, an image that has been made by their own hands, or maybe a, uh, an object of creation, and they bow down to it, they give homage to it, they submit to it, they sacrifice to it, and they, they do their little chants to it, and we see this, and, you know, it's funny in Star Wars, and we tend to think, that's not right here. You know, we tend to think that that doesn't happen in Cisna Park, Illinois. Uh, that doesn't happen in these here United States. That doesn't happen in the civilized West. Does it? Or does it? I would su- suggest to you that it does. And while we may not be bowing down to C-3PO, I hope none of you are bowing down to C-3PO. Um, have like little statues, you know, of C-3PO or Star Wars characters. And I hope none of you are doing that. Um, while we don't bow down necessarily to physical, tangible objects like in the days of old, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, uh, if John Calvin is right, and he is, I think, If John Calvin is right, then we too are good at inventing idols to worship, like the Ewoks invented this idol to worship. John John Calvin says this. It's the the basis and where I got the title of our, our sermon series this morning. He says, The human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, an expert in inventing idols. And I think that that's true. In fact, biblically, we're going to find out that indeed he is true. And that is true. And, and the reason is because we, made in the image of God, made for relationship, made to delight in the Trinitarian God, made to worship him, to walk in fellowship with him, to give ourselves to him. It's because we were made as worshipers. And the truth is, is that we will either worship God or we will worship something or someone else. Uh, Edward Welch says it well. He says it this way. He says, either we will love and serve God, or we will love and serve our idols. There is no option C. And so we're loving God, or we're loving our idols. Um, One other Christian author says it succinctly. He says it this way. He says, the opposite of Theism, that is the belief in God, the worship of God. The opposite of theism is not atheism. It's not atheism. It's idolatry. And what we're going to find out this morning in part one, the idol factory, is that idolatry is merely worship gone wrong. That's what idolatry is, is worship gone wrong. And so for us to begin to understand this biblical concept of idolatry that we're going to flesh out in the weeks to come, we have to begin not with idolatry, but we have to begin with worship. Because that's what we were made for, is worship. That's what we are intended and 
made to do with God, and yet idolatry is a perversion of that. It's worship gone wrong. So I want to see this principle. I want us all to see this principle in a really probably familiar place to most of us, and that is the Ten Commandments. We won't be seeing any of Charlton Heston this morning, I'm sorry, but we do have another clip. It's just not of of him. So let's begin in Exodus chapter 20, and uh, we'll read the first six verses of what we commonly call the Ten Commandments. And I think it'll be on the screen, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all of these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Reading of of God's word. And so simply, we're going to do this this morning. We're going to take a look at the first commandment. We're going to take a look at the second commandment. We're going to see the relationship between worship what we're made to, that is to do, that is worship God and idolatry. What's the relationship between the two? And then I hope in a very practical way to flesh out what it looks like in everyday life and very common relationships that we all have or most of us have. What it looks like for us to either give ourselves in worship to God or give ourselves in worship to something or someone else. And so let's get started with the first commandment, verses 1 through 3. Uh, we just read it, and what we see is that in verses 1 and 2, before God gets to the first commandment, before he says, this is number 1, jot it down on the tablet, Moses, he gives the motivation for obedience. Now don't miss this. This is really, really important. If you were in Sunday school, you're going to hear some of the same things that we talked about. This is of supreme significance that before God gives us the first commandment, which is essentially a commandment of exclusive worship of him, he's going to show us the resources and the motivation that we should have for obeying it. Let's reread again verses 1 and 2. Notice the focus on what is said in verses 1 and 2. It's not on what we are supposed to do, but it's on what God has done. Verse 2 again. I, I am the Lord your God. What, what have I done? What have I done? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And so in verses 1 and 2, so significant. God says, this is the motivation. This is the reason why you should worship me, Israel, This is the reason why you should worship me, Christian, uh, first and foremost. It's because I've redeemed you. Notice what he says. First of all, he says, I'm the Lord your God. That is an exclusive term. He's saying, I am Yahweh. That's the term there. I am the covenant God. I'm not just any God. I am God. I am your God, exclusively. And then he says, not only this is who I am, but notice what I've done for you, O Israel. He says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. While I won't belabor this because I'm going to get to it in a few minutes, the point that I want us to see is that God did not 
talk to the Israelites in Egypt and say, here, I'm going to give you my law. And by the way, this is the beginning of what is considered the law, all of the covenant stipulations. This is how you're supposed to worship me. This is, supposed, this is how you're supposed to act when you come into the land that I'm supposed to give you. This is how you're supposed to govern yourself. And he gives them all of these stipulations about what right worship looks like. And he doesn't give that to them while they're still in bondage, does he? He doesn't give it to them while they're still enslaved. No, what does he do? He brings them out. He gives them the exodus. He gives them a mediator, Moses, and he delivers them out of bondage, out of slavery, thus enabling them to obey him. And so he says, this is what I've done for you. Now this is how I want you to respond to me. I won't belabor that. Keep that in mind. First of all, we see the motivation. In light of what I've done, this is how I want you to respond. And then in verse 3, we get the commandment. Let's read it again. He says, it's short, sweet. You shall have no other gods before me. Sounds pretty simple, right? Don't have any other gods before me. As I said before, this is basically God saying, you must worship me exclusively. You must worship me exclusively. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, everything that you are is to be for me. Don't worship any other gods, is what he says. But the implication here is that there might be other gods. Notice, you shall have no other little little G gods, right? This is not a capital G God. It's a little G God. He says you shouldn't have any other little G gods. And the implication is that if you don't worship me, there are going to be little G gods. You either worship me, Yahweh, big G God, or you will inevitably worship other little G gods. And so the first commandment should erase in our minds a couple questions. So jot these down if you're taking notes. The question number one that this elicits is, what other little G gods might Israel and might we put before God? Notice, that's what, it's a negative stipulation. Don't put any little G gods before me. Well, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? What little g-gods? We're going to answer that in a second. The second question that should raise in our mind is, God, how then do you want us to worship you? What does it look like so that we live our life in such a way that we worship you and there's no other object of worship? Literally, there's no other God before me. I am in first place. How do we worship so that there are no other gods? before God. If you're a Christian this morning, if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that's an important question. And I hope that resonates with you. I hope, as my heart does, your heart says, I want to know that. I want to know how to worship God in such a way that it's exclusive, in such a way that I'm not worshiping these little g-gods. And so there are a couple questions, right? And what we see is the second command comes right along in verses 4, 5, and 6, mostly in verse 4, and it answers these questions for us. And so let's read verse 4 again because it answers the first question. Verse 4 says this, You shall not, another negative command... You shall not make for yourself an image. Your translation might say idol. Uh, you, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything 
in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. And so verse 4 answers this first question. Remember, the first question is this. What other little g-gods might we be prone, might they be prone to put before God? And we get the answer here. We might be prone to put little g-idols before God. And so he introduces and explains what he means in the first commandment. Don't worship any other gods before me. What, what are you talking about? What would we worship before you? Idols. You might worship idols before me, these little G gods. Uh, notice a couple things about these idols. Next, actually not next Sunday because that's Mother's Day, but the week after that, we're going to flesh out uh, hopefully a, a biblical theology of idolatry. That may sound weird. It's going to be a biblical theology of idolatry, which basically means what does the Bible have to say about idols? We're going to flesh it out. Uh, in, in a couple weeks. But let's just notice a couple things from this text about these little g gods that Israel and that we might be prone to put before God. Number one, we, we set them up as objects of worship. Notice what God says. We set them up as objects of our worship. Verse four, notice the verb. You shall not make for yourself see that? You shall not make for yourself an image. We set up idols to worship in our lives. They're set up by our very hands. We're supposed to worship God. We say, no, I'm going to set up this object as an object of worship. Plainly stated, we substitute a created thing for the creator. Do you see that? We substitute that which is created person, place, thing, object, for worship that should go to the creator. We set them up. And what this points to is, again, a point that I'm hoping to hammer home, is that we will do one of the other. We will do one or the other. We'll worship God or we will worship an idol. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. We will worship God or we will worship an idol and there is no in-between. At every moment, of every minute, of every breath that we take, we're worshiping God or we're worshiping an idol. Either or. it's, It's exclusive. It's because we're worshipers. It's because we're made to worship. We can't help it. We're made in the image of God to worship and delight and give ourselves to something greater than ourselves. And it's going to be God or it's going to be an idol. One pastor by the name of Rich Cathers said it this way, really uh, appropriately. He says, man by nature is a religious creature. We are religious creatures. He will find someone or something to give his worship to. And so if that's the truth, then our idea of what it means to worship is much bigger than like writing a check and putting it in a plate or lifting our hands or singing with our mouth or listening with our ears. Worship is much much, much bigger and broader than simply what we do here on a Sunday morning. What we do here on a Sunday morning certainly is worship, um, but worship is much bigger than that. We are always worshiping. We set up these objects with our own hands. Secondly, notice this. Anything can be an idol. We're going to flesh this out in the weeks to come. But from the get-go, I want us to see that anything can be an idol. Notice the language that God uses to describe these little g-gods that we might worship. He says, in the form of, what does it say? In the form of, verse 4, we're not there. That's okay. Read in your Bibles. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of 
Anything. Thank you. Okay, you're alive. Good. Uh, anything. Anything. Anything can be an idol. And then he goes on to describe it. In heaven above, okay, that covers that area, or the earth below, or earth beneath, so that covers like everything that we have on the ground level, earth. And then he goes on to say, or the waters below. Well, that pretty well covers it, doesn't it? Uh, worship, worshiping an idol can, can happen anywhere to anything. Anything can be an idol. Anything can be an idol. And so we've answered this first question. The first question that the first commandment elicits, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, what are you talking about, God? What other little g-gods might we have before you? Idols. We might have idols. We might create for ourselves idols to have before God. Okay, what about the second question? The second question that the first commandment elicits is this. How do we worship God so that no other little g-gods, so that no other idols are before him. That is, positively speaking, how does God want us to worship him? Well, he's going to tell us, I think, in verses 5 and 6, mostly verse 5. Let's read again what it says. Verse 5. You shall not bow down. Notice the verbs. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You should not bow down to them. You should not worship them. And so essentially what God is saying is he's saying, okay, you are prone to set up little g idols and this is what you're going to do. You're going to worship them. You might worship them. And what that means is, number one, bowing down to them. Uh, 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 right? That's the image here, right? You might bow down to them or you might worship them. And so he says, Don't do that. Don't bow down to an idol. Don't worship an idol. And the contrast is what? You're supposed to bow down and you're supposed to worship who? Me. God. That's what he's saying. And so he describes what this looks like in our life, what it looks like in the Israelites' life, what it would look like for us to worship God. And it basically looks like a couple things. It looks like bowing down. And it looks like worship. Let me flesh this out for you after I take a drink of my coffee. Let me flesh this out for you. Uh, I did a fascinating, I say I did a fascinating study. I discovered a fascinating study. I was flipping through some of my notes. I took a class in seminary called Leading the Church in Worship. Little did I know that I'd be playing the guitar. But obviously worship is much bigger than that. Um, And I was flipping through the notes and I came across what I was looking for, which was a study on all of the verbs, all of the words used both in the Old Testament and the New Testament encompassing this idea of worship. And so the question then becomes, how, how does God say we're supposed to worship him, right? How does God say we're supposed to worship him? And when you look at it, uh, it's broken down to basically two main categories. There are bunches of verbs, bunches of Old Testament words, bunches of New Testament words, but they're all very similar, strikingly similar. In fact, if you're a geek and you really want to see this chart, I have it in my office. You can look at all the Hebrew and Greek. But basically what, what we discover is that there are two main categories of worship words. Two main ways that God says, this is how you worship me. And the first way is described in this Old Testament word translated to bow down. And so bowing down, obviously, physically, we know what that means. It means we do this, right? We get down below the object of our worship, We're down here, he or she or it is up here, and in some cultures you even go all the way down so that your head is on the ground. You are bowing down to that 
person, or object. And so it can mean physically bowing down. But it can also mean in conjunction with, because that's what the body does, but what, what are you saying? What are you doing in your spirit when you do that? You are submitting. You are humiliating yourself. You are saying you, it, this thing that you're bowing down to, is of significance. It's of preeminence, right? It's of supreme value. That's what you mean, or that's what happens internally when you bow down physically. And so it can mean physical bowing down, but oftentimes it means to submit your will to that person's. To submit, I'm going to do what you want. And in doing so, you declare, you, it, are of most importance to me. Does that make sense? That's what one category means. That's what this word means, bowing down. Secondly, uh, the second category of words fits with this idea translated worship. Your translation might say service or sacrifice. The second category of meaning of worship essentially describes sacrificing to, so giving something up for, sacrificing to, or serving, that is being obedient to the will of that object which you are worshiping, right? This is a natural progression. We bow down to an object or a person. We say, your will is most important. I'm going to do what, I'm going I'm to submit myself to your will because you're most important, and then I'm going to serve you. I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to sacrifice to you. These are the two main categories of worship in the Old and New Testaments. And the point of this is simply this. God says, either I am going to be most significant or an idol is going to be of most significance. Either you're going to submit your will to me and what I say, or you're going to submit your will to it or her or him and do what it or she or he says. You're going to sacrifice for me and serve me or you're going to sacrifice to it or her or him and serve it or her or him. Do you see the picture that I'm painting? Preeminence, submission, sacrifice. You see that? That's what worship means. And what God is saying here, do that for me, (laughs) not for anything else. Understand? Okay, so a couple other points, and we're going to flesh this out, hopefully, Lord willing. Uh, God then, I think in verses... Five and six gives us a couple reasons. Why is it that we are to avoid idolatry at all costs? Uh, a couple reasons. First of all, we're supposed to avoid idolatry because God is jealous for our worship. If you're taking notes, write this down. God is jealous for our worship. Notice what the text says. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for. What does that mean? He's giving the reasons. For I, Yahweh, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. He is jealous for our worship. Um, I don't know about you, but when I hear these kind of terms, I immediately kind of recoil because on the human level, jealousy usually is not put in a positive context, right? When I say I'm jealous of somebody's this or that or the other, that's a negative thing. You know, I, I, I want that. I, I, I yearn for that. But jealousy, I would argue, both on the human level and especially on the divine level, can be a healthy and a normal thing. And so let me uh, illustrate it for you on the human level. I think there's a healthy sense of jealousy. Um, and the image that I kept coming to over and over again, because I think it's a biblical image, is that of marriage. And so maybe you're married, maybe you've been married, uh, maybe you will be married. Um, the 
First two will understand this, the last two won't, but you can kind of understand this. In marriage, you stand at the altar, you say your vows to one another, and you enter into a covenant relationship to where I vow to do this, and you vow to do that, and you were made for one another, so that that which the wife is to give to the husband, and the husband is to give to the wife, is exclusive. Right? That's what marriage is. It's exclusive. So you don't... You don't submit and love and cherish and better for worse. Just any guy, right? You do that for your husband. It's exclusive. And so when you or I or anyone sees or experiences uh, what is called adultery, when you see your spouse, your husband or your wife, and you discover that their affections have been going somewhere else, you discover that their bodies have been going somewhere else. You discover that their heart is not yours. What do you feel? Obviously, a range of emotions. But I would submit to you that you feel jealous. And it's a healthy thing. You feel jealous because they were made for you. God says, that which I have, I have put together, let no man separate. And so... There's a jealousy. If I ever experience my wife doing that or if she ever experiences me doing that, there's going to be a sense of healthy jealousy. He's mine. He was given to me for that. God, unlike us, did not create humanity because he was needy. In Acts 17, Paul essentially says that. He says that God doesn't need anything. He, doesn't, he didn't create us because he needed worship. He created us to worship him both for his glory and for our good. For our good. And so he's jealous for our worship. It's no wonder then, we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, it's no wonder then that when the Bible talks about idolatry, worshiping this rather than God, the, one of the overarching, one of the prominent images is that of spiritual adultery. It's that of spiritual adultery. We're shacking up with another God. That's why. So um, let me show you this clip. Maybe you're familiar with this movie. There's a scene out of the movie Fireproof. Maybe you've seen it before. I think is uh, at least a, a good uh, start to show this idea of a healthy jealousy. So let's watch this together. If we can get the lights, please. Thanks. Um, yeah. I need to know if there's a Gavin that works at the hospital. Uh, no, I just have a first name. Dr. Keller? Yes? Caleb Holt, I need a word with you, please. Well, like it's really not a good time. I'm just about to make my rounds. I think you need to make time. This is concerning Catherine, my wife. All right. What can I do for you? I know what you're doing. And I have no intention of stepping aside as you try to steal my wife's heart. I've made some mistakes, but I still love her. So just know I am going after her, too. And since I'm married to her, I'd say I've got a head start. By the way, thanks for helping me with my hand. My ring finger's feeling a whole lot better. All right. Familiar scene. I think a 
good portrayal of this healthy jealousy. Um, I can see God, who has redeemed us through the cross of Christ unto himself, coming up to our idols and saying, I know what you're doing. I'm not just going to give up while you worship something else. Number two, there there are consequences. Not only is God jealous, but there are consequences. And I'll just read this and get into our application. Verses five and six. He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and who keep my commandment. Simply what I think this means is that idolatry in one initial generation will follow through possibly, will likely follow the next several generations. But if one worships God, if one chooses God over idols, that God may then allow that to continue on for subsequent generations. The point that I want us to see is simply this. The second and the first commandment are this. Number one, God says positively, worship me alone. Negatively, don't worship anything else alone. Number two, don't worship idols. And this is what worship of idolatry, of idols, or of me looks like. And so hopefully I want this relationship to be clear. We either worship God or we worship idols. So what does this mean for you and I? Let me flesh this out for you. Try my best to do that. Number one, a couple application points. So if you're taking notes, number one, First, worship is a response to God's grace. Worship is a response to God's grace. What I don't want you to hear is that God is just saying, after doing nothing for you, worship me, worship me, worship me. I'm not going to give you any resources. I'm not going to change you. I'm not going to give you any grace. If you want for me to be favorable to you, if you want me to save you, then worship me. That's not what God's saying. Worship is a response of God's grace, of something that God has done. We talked about in Sunday school this morning, and I'll reiterate the fact that this is right after the Exodus. Remember what happened in the Exodus, Charlton Heston, boom, waters, all that stuff, right? You have the image in your mind. This is the great salvation moment in the Old Testament. God redeemed his people. Where were they? They were in bondage. They were in slavery. They couldn't do what they wanted to do. They couldn't worship who they wanted to do. How did he do it? Remember, the last of the plagues, God says, I'm going to send the angel of the Lord, and there's going to be death. There's going to be death. But how did Israel get out from underneath God's wrath? Remember? He says, take a lamb, kill it, spread it over the doorpost, and you will be saved by the blood of a lamb. Does it sound familiar? It should, because the Old Testament points us towards the greater Exodus and towards the greater Passover lamb. The New Testament affirms that we are, just like Israel, enslaved. We are in bondage, not to earthly masters, although some people in the, in the world are. The Bible says that we are enslaved to a harder taskmaster. It's called sin. Our sin nature, we're born with it. We do it. It enslaves us. It says, jump, we say, how high? It says, run, we say, how long? We're enslaved to sin. And the Bible says that Jesus came to free us out of bondage, out of death, out of sin, and he does it by his blood. He passes over us. His wrath is averted because of the blood of our Passover lamb, as Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians. And so the order is significant. We don't worship God because we want to be saved by God. We worship God because we have been saved by God of grace. Have you? Have you been set free 
from your bondage or are you like the Egyptians still in slavery? Have you trusted in the Passover lamb? Have, have, has your, if you will, doorpost been covered by the blood of the lamb so that God's wrath is no longer on you and he's setting you free? Have you done that today? If you haven't, I'd invite you to trust in Christ this morning. Secondly, what does this look like? We worship as a response to God's grace. Secondly, we are always worshiping something. That's the second main application. We're always worshiping, worshiping something, either God or idols. Let me give you three examples, and hopefully this can flesh out and begin to help you think through maybe the possible idols that are in your life and in my life and how we either worship God or the idols. Three examples to begin with. Remember, what is worship defined as? Preeminence, prominence, most significant thing in our life, then we bow down, we submit to it, to its will, and then we sacrifice and we serve it, right? Remember that paradigm? It works in almost every area of life. So number one, uh, I don't know how many of you are in the dating process. Young kids, listen up. This is for you. You may be dating, you may not be dating, you may think dating is gross, in a few years you're going to think it's a great idea. Okay, so just hang in there. Maybe it's on your mind. Maybe you're dating someone right now. I don't know where you are, Uh, but listen up. Uh, worship, we worship God in the way that we date, okay? We worship God in the way that we date. So, number one, if God is indeed your God, I'm not talking about if you've been saved, if you've been delivered through Christ. I'm talking about functionally. If God is your God, then, number one, you're not going to date someone who's not a Christian. I know, that's like so archaic, right? No, I did it. (laughs) I'm not that archaic, am I? Uh, You're not going to date someone who's not a Christian because God says don't be unequally yoked. And you may say, well, he's cute. Or man, she's really good looking. Or man, she's the class president. Or or whatever, whatever. You're not going to date someone who's not a Christian if God is your God. If God is your God. Because you will submit to God's will rather than that boy's or that girl's or your own will. But if that boy or that girl or you are your God, if you are your God or that boy or that girl, you will date an unbeliever. You'll do it. You're going to date an unbeliever because God is not your God at that point, but the very idea of having a relationship, that's your God. The idea of saying you must date someone, that's your God. That's, that's its will, and you bow down to it, and you sacrifice obedience to God for it. Does that make sense? Number two, uh, if God is your God in dating, you're going to hold your body in such a way that honors God in purity. I'm not just talking about avoiding sex, although that is a part of it. Purity is not a line. Teenagers, listen to this. Purity is not a line. It's a direction, right? It's not like, oh, I didn't cross this. I didn't cross this. That's good. It's a direction. It's pursuing a direction of holiness. And so if God is your God, you're going to do that with your body. You're going to do that. But... If that boy or that girl is your God, or if your desire, your passion is your God, then you will. You'll break, you'll break that boundary because at that point, his will, what he wants, is your God. You'll bow down to him. You see it? He's of significance. You will obey his will, not God's. You will sacrifice your very body on the altar for him. You see how this is extremely practical? You worship God or you worship the boy or the girl. What about in marriage? For those of you who are out of that phase and in, in the phase of marriage, what does it look like for God to be your God in marriage? 
Oh, for example, there are a lot of different things. If God is in your God, if God is your God in marriage, then number one, you're not going to expect your spouse to be everything for you emotionally and spiritually. You are just not going to demand that your spouse provide for you all of the unconditional love, all of the unconditional acceptance, all of the I love you and care for you and all of that stuff. Yeah, that's reasonable. That should happen. But you're not going to expect that primarily from your spouse. You know why? Because he or she cannot give it to you. Only God can. Only God can make you supremely loved and valued and accepted. You, you will seek that first. If God is your God in marriage, but if not, if your spouse or yourself is your God in marriage, then what you're going to do is you're going to expect your spouse to meet all of your emotional needs. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to be disappointed because they won't always do it. And then you will be bitter and angry and you'll be disappointed with them. And the God, which is your spouse will fail you, will fail you. If God is your God and marriage wives talk to you, a couple biblical imperatives, a couple big ones, you'll submit to your husband's leadership, leadership even if it's imperfect. My leadership is imperfect. Husbands, you all should say amen right now. Thank you. Your leadership, I got my amen for the sermon. There we go. Uh, your leadership is imperfect. You won't always lead perfectly, but wives, you're called to submit. Wives, you're also called to respect him, both in your words, in your actions, in your tone of voice, um, even though he's not always worthy of that. He's not always worthy. I'm not always worthy of respect. Men, say amen. amen. We're not always worthy of respect, but women, you're called to do this. And and if God is your God, you'll submit to his will in that. You'll bow down to him. But if not, if you are your God or if your spouse is your God, then you will expect perfect leadership. You will uh, be disappointed. You'll be disillusioned. He will fail you. And you're only going to respect him when he meets your standards for respect and leadership. That's what happens when your husband or your wife, husband, excuse me, or yourself is your God. What about parenting? What about parenting? Husbands, I skipped over you, but your day's coming. <laughs> parenting. What does this look like if you are parenting? Well, you can parent in such a way that you worship God and God is your God. Number one, if God is your God as you parent, you see kids as gifts from God, as blessings from the Lord, and they're supposed to be raised, right? Raise them up, and then you release them. That's what biblical parenting looks like. You raise them up and you release them. But if the kid is your God, then you don't do that. If the kid is your God, you see them as either your possession or your burden, depending upon whether you go positive or negative. If the kid is your God or if you are your God, then the kid is your, is your possession to be used, to be emotionally fed. You know what? Some men and some women, although I think mothers are more prone to this, they don't get their emotional needs primarily from God nor their husband, but they get it from their kids. It's like they're dating their kid. It's weird and unhealthy, you know, but they seek affirmation and love from the kid. Maybe they're not getting it from the dad. Shame on him but you should be getting it from God. But if the God, if your kid is God, then they're going to be seen as a possession. And when it comes time for you to let them go at 18 or 20 or 25, right? No, just kidding, not 25. Some of you are like, yeah, 25. Um, then you're not going to want to let them go because God is not your God. The kid is your God, right? Uh, secondly, if in parenting God is your God, 
One of your objectives will be to teach them loving obedience. They respond to your right and good and loving authority by being obedient to that authority, knowing that you love them and have their best interest in mind. That's a goal, right? You want them to be obedient. But if the kid is your God, then one of your goals is not going to be to make them holy through obedience. It's going to be to make them happy, right? Guilty. Everyone raise your hands. Guilty. I've been there. I'm guilty of this. The goal is to make them happy, not holy, and you end up allowing your whole life to be dictated around what they want and what they need and what they think they need, not setting any healthy limits. I think you can imagine in your mind what this looks like. Number three, if in, if in parenting God is your God, your ultimate goal will be for them to follow Jesus. <laughs> you want them to be godly. You want them to know Christ, don't you? I mean, parents, right? That's what we want. That's what I pray for my kid, that he would come to know Christ and love him ultimately. That's what I want, ultimately. But if the kid is your God, you're not going to want his holiness. You're going to want him to be successful, per se. Your goal for that kid is not going to be that he may have a minimum wage job or below a minimum wage job or that he does something that you just don't consider to be successful, getting into this college, getting this kind of degree, having this kind of a lifestyle, if that's your goal, if that's your God, then you're going to pursue that and it's not going to be, the kid's not ultimately going to love Christ if that's not your goal. You pin your identity on their, your future. Can't we do that, parents? Can't we? We pin our identity on what they are doing currently. Do they make A's or F's? Are they starting basketball or are they sitting the bench? You know? We pin all of our hopes and our identity on this, and God is not our God. But the kid becomes our God. And so, do you see what I'm trying to paint? We worship God. He is of preeminence. We, sac- we, we bow down to his will in every area of life, and we sacrifice for him, or the person, place, or thing is that, and we make them preeminent. We sacrifice, and we serve them. So in closing, I want you to consider... If worship is a response to God's grace, have you come to know Jesus Christ by faith? Secondly, if we're always worshiping, then the minute you set forth and you go cook lunch, you're going to be worshiping God or you're going to be worshiping an idol. What is it that you're worshiping? In the next several weeks, we're going to flesh out all of the possible idols that we do and can worship. There's a pantheon, just like there's a pantheon uh, In Greece, there's a pantheon in America. There's a pantheon of idols that we make for ourselves. We're going to learn how to identify them, how to destroy them, and how to replace them with God. John Calvin, the human heart is an idol factory. Welcome to the idol factory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you so desire for us to love you with all that we are, to worship you, to submit our wills to you, to sacrifice to you, and to serve you because you're good. You don't just demand that of us, not doing anything for us, but you have sent your son, your very son, to be perfect for us, to die the death that we deserve, your wrath upon him, his righteousness in our place. And then he arose from the dead. He sent the Holy Spirit to change us, to make us new people, to be new creatures, to be born again, to have new desires. And then you say, worship me. You were made for this. So God, may we worship you and not little G gods. May we have eyes to see our little G gods, our idols that are all around us and in our hearts. Help us to see them. Help us to forsake them. 
Help us to worship you. In Christ's name, amen.